1: at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.
2: This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. One of the first stories that I recorded for this podcast was way back in January of 2008, and that was the story of Violet Jessup. She was the only person to survive the collision of the three sister ships. That's the Olympic, which came first. Then they built the Titanic, which I think everybody knows the story of. And finally the Britannic, which was originally called the Gigantic, But after the Titanic collision, they changed it to the Britannic. Anyway, here we are 12 years later and it's time for another story about the Titanic. And I know that so much has been told and retold about the Titanic over the years. So I'm hoping that the story I selected for you today is one that you haven't heard before. So to begin, I'd like to introduce you to two women. They are 49-year-old Mrs. Lily Potter and her daughter, Olive Earnshaw, who was 23 years old when the Titanic disaster occurred. At the time, Olive's marriage had failed and she had filed for divorce. So her mom, who had been widowed just two years prior, she came up with a perfect solution for the two of them to get away from it all. They would embark on a tour of Europe and the Middle East beginning in December of 1911. And to make their trip even more enjoyable, they invited 24-year-old Margaret Bexstein Hayes to accompany them. You see, Olive and Margaret had become good friends while they were students at the Briarcliff School in New York. Now, I should point out that Margaret will play a big part in the story, so just keep her in mind as I'm going through this. Now, they had already arranged passage home on another ship, but as they were about to leave Turkey, they learned that if they postponed their voyage back by just one week, they could sail on the maiden voyage of the grandest ship of them all, the RMS Titanic. It was that decision that would ultimately make these three women footnotes to history. The Titanic set sail from Southampton, England on April 10th of 1912 and it made a quick stop that evening in Cherbourg, France to pick up additional passengers. It was there that Lily Olive and Margaret first boarded the smaller SS nomadic tender which transported them out to the Titanic which had been unable to dock due to its immense size. When the Titanic hit the iceberg at 11.40pm on Sunday, April 14th, all three women had already retired to their cabins for the evening. But upon hearing the engine cease operation, the two younger women, who were in cabin C-54, they went to check on Olive's mom in C-50. Now, while they were assured by a steward that there was absolutely nothing to worry about, the three decided to get dressed. They even wrapped Margaret's Pomeranian named Bebby in a blanket, and they headed out to the sea deck. All three then proceeded to put life jackets on, they boarded into lifeboat number 7, and at 12.40 a.m., it became the first lifeboat to set sail. Now, it's very well known that the Titanic only carried enough lifeboats to accommodate about half of the estimated 2,224 passengers and crew that were on board at the time of its sinking. Had the ship carried her full complement of 3,339 people, that fraction drops to about one-third. Even worse, the majority of the lifeboats that were launched were not filled to capacity. For example, the boat containing Lily, Olive, Margaret, and Baby had a capacity of 65. Yet, it sailed off with only 28 passengers aboard. The last lifeboat to be successfully lowered into the water was known as Collapsible D. Just as that boat was about to depart, a man appeared on the Titanic deck clutching two young boys in his arms. Officers stepped forward to prevent him from boarding the boat, so he shouted down to the crew of the lifeboat for them to please help save his babies. They agreed and he dropped the older boy down into the arms of a sailor. After observing that he was safely caught, the man then dropped the other youngster. Now according to survivors, the man was last seen dropping to his knees, his hands clasped in prayer, and tears were streaming down his face. That will be the last time that he ever saw his children. After receiving the Titanic's distress call, the RMS Carpathia arrived on the scene at 4 a.m., and its crew spent the next five hours rescuing survivors before its captain finally gave the order to set sail. There were 705 survivors aboard. More than 1,500 lives were lost. It was during the three-day voyage to New York aboard the Carpathia that Margaret Hayes would first take notice of the two young boys as they played with her dog, Bebby. Now, since they were the only two children to be rescued without a parent or a guardian, she took it upon herself to care for them. While little was known about the boys, it was clear from their striking resemblance that they were almost certainly brothers. One was roughly four years of age, and the other two. One survivor, a guy named Julian Pedro, said that the boys occupied the cabin next to his, and that the man who accompanied them was named Hoffman, who he believed was their father. He described the father as being 40 years of age, of medium height and build, dark hair, mustache, and a ruddy complexion. While Hoffman had little interaction with others on the boat, the survivors who did recalled that he spoke French, and they believed that he was a widower. Margaret Hayes, who spoke fluent French, tried her best to learn what she could from the older boy, but she had no luck to just about every question that she asked the boy, he would simply answer, we. Oui. Upon arrival in New York, Margaret took the two children to her family's home, which was located at 304 West 83rd Street in Manhattan. With the shocking sinking of the Titanic being front-page news nearly worldwide, the story of what became known as the Two Waves of the Sea, or the Two Orphans of the Sea, quickly spread worldwide the press speculated that Margaret would probably adopt the two children. When interviewed, Ms. Hayes told reporters, I could not allow them to be sent to a foundling home. Just think of it. Two little atoms of humanity, whose lives would have been filled with happiness, who would have been gently brought up by loving parents, robbed of their names, condemned through no fault of their own to become nameless things in an institution. I could not do that. Margaret, with the financial help of her parents, provided the boys with everything they would need until a relative could be found. That is, should a relative ever be found. They provided the boys with food, shelter, toys, and of course, most importantly, lots of love. The boys seemed incredibly happy, and they seemed oblivious to the great tragedy that took the life of their dad, and of course, so many others. Still unable to determine their names, the French consul in New York offered his assistance. He stated, quote, I've read in the papers that the older boy has said his name is Louis, but I can get nothing from him to prove it. It seems to me more likely that he answers oui-oui to everything. He was understood to say that his name was Louis, which might seem to have the same sound to an American. I have cabled France and will do everything I can to find the relatives of the children but as yet I have gained nothing from them to aid in the search. The Children's Aid Society arranged for a native Frenchman to visit the children, and he concluded that the boys spoke with a dialect that was unmistakably from the southern portion of France. And the search continued. Margaret's father, that's Frank B. Hayes, remarked, We have no intention of keeping them beyond the time when their relatives are found or the search for them is given up. A Montreal family who were passengers on the Titanic are anxious to adopt them, and my daughter says they shall have the preference. Of course, many persons here in New York have also offered to take them. The published story that the children were in the same boat with my daughter and clung to her instinctively is a misstatement. My daughter left in the first lifeboat, and the two children followed on later boats. The smaller boy was tossed from the deck of the Titanic into a lifeboat without a stitch of clothing. The older child wore only a shirt when he was taken aboard the Carpathia. The survivors of the Titanic on board formed a ladies' committee, and as my daughter was the only one among them who had not suffered some personal loss through the disaster, She was asked to care for the two children, and gladly did so. She was told that the two children had been in the second cabin of the Titanic in the care of a man named Hoffman. But we have been unable to get any clue to their whereabouts from the Star line, or anywhere else. Margaret Hayes received more than 450 offers from all over the nation from people willing to adopt the two boys. All of the inquiries were then forwarded to the Children's Aid Society for handling. Offers came in from doctors, lawyers, a stockbroker, even a French architect living in New York City, and so many others. Margaret's personal preference, and this contradicts her dad's statement about a Montreal family, her personal preference was that the boys be entrusted to the care of an unnamed friend, you know, should a legitimate relative not be located. The first claim from a possible relative came within one day of the Carpathia arriving in New York with the survivors. You see, one year prior to the sinking of the Titanic, mystic Iowa resident Frank Lefebvre had emigrated to the United States from France. Like so many others, he came in search of employment, and upon earning enough to send for his family, his wife and four youngest children secured passage on the Titanic. Upon hearing the news of the two unidentified French children, he headed right for New York to determine if they were his or not. Sadly, they proved not to be his, and the bodies of his wife and children were never recovered. There's quite a bit of publicity regarding the two orphans in the French newspapers, and one week after the Titanic sinking, a 21-year-old woman named Marcel Navratil came forward believing that the two boys could be her missing sons. She said that she had separated from her husband, Michelle, and he disappeared with the children, telling friends that he was going to take them to the United States. Madame Navarro described her two boys as follows. The older is Michelle Jr., nicknamed Lolo, who spoke with difficulty and was a couple of months shy of his fourth birthday. His younger brother was Edmund, or Momo for short, who was just two years old. Not only were their ages similar, but her physical descriptions of the two boys closely matched that of the two waifs. Could she really be their mother? Well, that was still to be determined. The first problem was that there was no one with the name of Navratil registered as a passenger on the Titanic. Survivors had clearly recalled that the man in charge of these two boys was named Hoffman, which was confirmed by an L. Hoffman on the passenger list. Madame Navratil confirmed that her husband did have a friend named Louis Hoffman, but that could just be pure coincidence. So if the children were hers, it was possible that her husband either assumed his friend's name for the voyage, or that Hoffman himself had agreed to escort the children to the United States. There were lots of questions to answer. The first step in resolving this mystery occurred in Monte Carlo. Madame Navratil provided a picture of her husband to the British consul there. A ticket agent confirmed that he had sold tickets to the man in the photograph and the children who accompanied him for a voyage on, you know what, for a voyage on the Titanic. And the exact count is unknown, but it's estimated that 334 bodies were recovered from the wreck. 125 of them were buried at sea, and the remaining 209 were transported to Halifax, Nova Scotia for burial. It was there that New York City resident Frederick Wenger traveled in hope of positively identifying the body of his brother-in-law, a guy named Sante Regini, and sadly he was able to do so. But as Wenger moved around the many open caskets in search of his brother in law, another body grabbed his attention. Quote, Why, I know that man. That is Louis Hoffman of Nice, France. His two little boys are in New York now. Now, I should point out that Wenger was not aboard the Titanic, so it's unclear how he was able to know what Hoffman looked like. He must have seen a photograph at some point. With the incredible expanse of the Atlantic Ocean lying between Madame Navratil and the two children, she needed to find a surefire way to prove that the children were indeed hers. So she prepared a series of questions that only her children would know the answers to. The questions and corresponding answers were telegraphed to New York, and Margaret Hayes asked them to the older child in French. Now, since I can't read French, I've asked my wife to do so for me, so let's take a listen.
0: Question. Qu'est-ce que maman t'a donné la veille de Pâques? What did mama give you the day before Easter? Answer. Des chocolats. Chocolates. Question. Dans quoi? In what? Answer. Dans des œufs de Pâques. Inside Easter eggs. Question. Qu'y avait-il sur les œufs? What was on the eggs? Answer, un lapin, a rabbit. Question, qu'est-ce que faisait maman avec les petits bois? What did mama make with the little blocks of wood? Answer, le chien qui boit du lait avec le petit garçon. She made the dog who's drinking milk with the little boy. And this is referring to an image, to a jigsaw puzzle made of wood. question. À Nice, à la maison de maman, qui c'est qui était malade? In Nice, at Mama's home, who was it that was ill? Answer, grand-maman, grandma. Question, où c'est que tu allais avec Marie? Where did you go with Marie? Answer, à la mer, voilà les plan. To the seashore, to see airplanes. Question, qui c'est qui déchirait les en bois? Who broke up the wooden blocks? Answer: Maman. Mama did. Question: Qui sait qui s'appelle Marcel? Whose name is Marcel? Answer: C'est maman. It's Mama.
2: Nearly any doubt that anyone had about these two being her children was removed when 5 of the 8 questions were answered correctly. On April 24th, that's 10 days after the Titanic impacted the iceberg, the offices of the White Star Line in New York City received an unsigned cablegram from Liverpool stating that the sender would be coming ASAP to claim the boys. Frank Hayes told reporters, quote, I heard the woman claiming to be the mother of the boys had sailed from Liverpool, but I haven't been able to find out anything about her and don't know whether there's a new woman in the case or Madame Navretel of Nice, France. The White Star people can or won't give me any information. His daughter Margaret, in turn, questioned the newspaper as to what they may know. Quote, Have you learned anything? Well, I don't believe that French woman is the mother of these children at all. Her story is not plausible. To which her dad replied, It certainly seems plausible to me. The children speak French and are of Southern France type. They are of the age that Madame Navratil states her children are. They must have been brought up near water as they are crazy over boats, and they are children of manifest refinement and as fond of automobiles as boats. After reading Madame Navratil's story, Rudolph Navratil of 317 East 9th Street in Manhattan was convinced that the two boys belonged to his uncle, who was also named Rudolf Navratil. Now, he had not seen his uncle in many years, but he did state, My uncle was about 45 years old, and he left Hungary when only 20. Since that time, he has resided in several different countries, but most of the time in France. He continued, I've seen the pictures of the two titanic waves and can trace a strong family resemblance. There is not a shadow of a doubt that the children are my uncle's. The only doubt is as to whether it was my uncle who had them on board the Titanic or whether it was his friend Hoffman. Well, this lead seemed promising but was quickly proven wrong. You see, shortly after reading the claim in the newspaper, the elder Rudolf Navratil contacted his nephew and explained that he had moved to New York City eight years prior and he never had any children. On May 6, Madame Navratil boarded the RMS Oceanic at Sherbourg and she began the long journey to New York. While the White Star line provided her with first-class accommodations in both directions, she mingled very little with the other passengers. While awaiting her arrival, the Children's Aid Society placed the boys in the care of one of Madame Navratil's relatives, whose name was purposely withheld from the press. She was later identified as Rose Bruno, a cousin who worked as a governess in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. Finally, on May 15th, that's one full month after the Titanic sank to its icy grave, the oceanic docked in New York City, and Madame Navratil was one of the first off of the ship. She was rushed through customs and then met at the pier by Margaret, her father Frank, cousin Rose, and of course a couple of others. After some brief introductions, they all took a cab to the office of the Children's Aid Society. There, she was hurried through a throng of reporters and photographers and led up to the nurse's parlor on the fifth floor of the building. Now the rest of the party fell back as Madame Navratel slowly turned the doorknob and then she pushed the door open. As she entered the room, she first spotted her eldest son, Michel, dressed in a tan sailor suit and he was seated in the corner of a window with a picture alphabet book in his lap. Her other son, Edmund, was crawling on the floor, attempting to put a child's puzzle together. She knelt to her knees and she called out to her children:
0: Mes enfants, mes petits!
2: Edmund let out a wail and then he ran towards his mother: Oh, Maman! Oh, Maman! Michel quickly followed and they all embraced for quite some time. The three were alone in the room for nearly an hour, but she never asked them about the tragedy or their father.
0: I do not want them to think about that. They must only be happy from now on. Only happy. No more distress.
2: While Madame Navratil was fluent in French and Italian, she spoke no English. So her statements were all translated into English for the benefit of the reporters and their readers.
0: I'm afraid they will both be frightened when they see the big ship on which I'm to take them back home Saturday. As for me, of course I'm not frightened, not at all.
2: When asked if she'd agree to any of the offers of adoption, she replied,
0: No, indeed, I couldn't give them up.
2: She then went on to describe how the whole mess began. She'd been born in Buenos Aires to Italian parents, but her family soon moved back to Genoa. It was there that she met her future husband, Hungarian Michel Navratil. He was a tailor by trade and the two married in 1907 when she was just 17. The couple ultimately settled down in Nice where his business prospered. The two were very happy until shortly after the birth of their second son, Edmund. That's when, at least according to Madame Navratil, everything started to turn sour. Her husband had become insanely jealous and their marriage quickly fell apart. She filed for separation and was granted custody of the children. Dad was only permitted to see his children once a month. It was on April 7th, 1912, that's Easter Day, that Madame Navratil sent her children to see her husband.
0: On Easter Sunday last, my children were taken to their father, and from that time to this I have not seen them. I then heard that he had sailed from Cherbourg on the Titanic. And when I heard of the sinking of the steamship, I almost lost my reason, for my babies, I thought, must have perished. Later came word that there were two children in New York, and when they told me what they looked like, I knew they must be mine.
2: She did express that she believed that her husband had died in the wreck, but she had no proof other than the positive identification by that ticket agent in Monte Carlo that both he and Louis Hoffman were, in fact, the same person. On Saturday, May 18th, Madame Navratil and her two children would board the Oceanic and begin their return trip to Europe. Just before they set sail, she commented,
0: "'The people here have been very kind.' I have not had many offers of help, but I've felt more than I can tell the sympathy for my babies and myself and the trouble strangers have taken to bring us together. I've had hundreds of letters of sympathy and even offers of marriage. We are simple folk, my children and I, and we need not much. God has been good enough to bring us together after so many terrible
2: things. But things did not go well when they got back home. Her deceased husband had sold his business for about $8,000, which is about $215,000 a day, and the money was never found. It is believed that he was carrying the cash with him to America, and of course it went down with the ship. One year later, Madame Navarito was working as a servant and struggling to make ends meet. Word that they were living in poverty somehow got back to New York, and the Hayes family once again stepped in to help. Margaret told reporters, quote, Monday is the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, and the legal limit for filing claims expires then. To enable Mrs. Navratil to begin suit, I sent her the money necessary. Her dad filed a claim for $30,000, but it's unclear if Mrs. Navratil ever received any compensation for her loss. Margaret would go on to marry Dr. Charles D. Easton of Newport, Rhode Island on April 24th of 1913. In November 1914, she would once again meet up with Madame Navertil and the two boys. And the reunion was reported as being joyous. Fast forward 20 years and Dr. Easton was 58 years old when he died after undergoing surgery on October 4th of 1934. Margaret would pass away on August 21, 1956 at 68 years of age in Buenos Aires. She had been there vacationing with her daughter and granddaughter and suffered a massive heart attack. Little is known about the boy's mom, Marcel Carreto Navratil, other than she worked very hard, successfully raised her two sons, and passed away in 1963. Edmund would work as an interior decorator before becoming an architect and builder. When World War II broke out, he joined the French army. Unfortunately, he was captured and placed in a German POW camp. Now, he was able to escape, but his health had suffered greatly during his internment, and he died on July 7th, 1953, at the young age of 43. Lastly, his brother Michel Navratil Jr. became a psychology professor. It was while he was in college that he would meet his future wife Juliette, and the couple married in 1932, and together they raised three children. In 1987, Michel made his first trip back to the United States to mark the 75th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. He returned once again in 1996, and along with two other female survivors, they cruised to the location of the wreck as attempts were being made to bring a portion of the ship to the surface. Before his return to France, he traveled to Halifax for the first time to visit his father's grave in the Baron de Hirsch Cemetery. Now, when the bodies were recovered, the intent was to bury the Jewish victims there. You know, it's a Jewish cemetery. But in an ironic twist, eight of the ten Titanic victims buried there were unidentified, and the two who were, weren't Jewish. Stuart Frederick William Wormald was a member of the Church of England, and Michel Navratil was Catholic. Now, the reason Navratil was buried in a Jewish cemetery was that he was originally identified as Louis Hoffman, and Hoffman was a Jewish surname. Today, his grave bears the correct name. Michel Navratil. His son Michel did reveal one family secret during his 1996 trip. The failure of his parents' marriage was not due to jealousy over the birth of Edmund. Quote, My mother never forgave herself for losing her children as a result of her love affair. In New York, there were many people who wanted to adopt us, The battle my mother had endured to win us back was to her like a divine punishment for what she had done. Michel Marcel Navratil Jr. was 92 years old when he passed away on January 30th of 2001. He was the last surviving male Titanic passenger. Four women outlived him. Prior to his death, he was quoted as saying, I don't recall being afraid. I remember the pleasure really of going plop into the lifeboat. Useless, useful, other that for you to decide.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, here is Vincent Pelletier with an important message. For the Republicans, it's Eisenhower and Nixon. For the Democrats, it's still a race to see who will come out ahead in party favor. This week is all important for the Democratic Party as they hold their national convention in Chicago. And you, the listener... We'll want to hear every history-making development on this station direct from the Democratic National Convention beginning tomorrow. NBC's Ace News staff and technical crew, more than 300 people, will bring you all of the news as it happens throughout the convention city tomorrow and every day of the convention. Be sure to make this NBC station your convention headquarters. Keep yourself up to date. Attend the Democratic Convention on NBC.
2: Since the Democratic and Republican conventions both recently completed, I thought it would be a good time to play that promotional piece that was broadcast on the radio show First Nighter on July 20th of 1952. The concept of the First Nighter program was that a listener could experience for him or herself what it would be like to be in the audience on the opening night of a Broadway play. The introduction of each show consisted of a host nicknamed Mr. First Nighter being picked up by a taxicab driven down Broadway, and then emerging in front of the little theater off Times Square. He would enter, be escorted to a seat by an usher, and would always take his seat in third row center. Mr. First Nighter would then whisper, The house lights have dimmed and the curtain is about to go up on tonight's production. And of course the show would begin. This particular play was titled Speak Ever So Gently, which starred Olin Sewell and Barbara Luddy. As you heard in that radio spot, Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon had already been selected to be the Republican candidates for president and vice president at the Republican convention a few weeks earlier. It was a fairly contentious convention, as Eisenhower had barely beat out rival Senator Robert A. Taft from Ohio. Now at the Democratic convention, Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson was asked to give the welcoming address. Now, Stevenson had been approached previously about running for president, but he repeatedly declined. But after delivering such an excellent speech at the convention, there was renewed interest in Stevenson being the Democratic candidate. So Stevenson finally agreed to do it, and he was chosen as the party's candidate. The election was decisive. The Eisenhower-Nixon ticket won 55% of the votes and carried 39 of the then 48 states' In the Electoral College, it was an even greater blowout. Eisenhower pulled 442 electoral votes compared to Stevenson's 89. The two would have another matchup in the 1956 election, and the results were even worse for Stevenson. That second time, Eisenhower secured 457 electoral votes and Stevenson only 73. Now, I'm almost certain you've experienced what's known as contagious yawning. You know, you yawn after seeing someone else yawn. I think we've all experienced it. Well, in mammals, contagious yawning has been observed in humans, domesticated dogs, chimpanzees, and in the subline of the Sprague Dolly Rat, which is basically a lab rat. So here's a question for you. Can you name the first non-mammal observed to experience contagious yawning? The first non-mammal that has experienced contagious yawning. Well, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Step into the world
0: of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at
1: chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group, void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken?
2: Here are three stories from the 1940s that deal with advances in science and technology. Physicist Robert Oppenheimer's name has long been synonymous with the development of the atomic bomb, but he wasn't always very good at dating. It was reported on December 8th of 1945 that when he was much younger, he had taken a girl out on a date and his car ran out of gas. Since it was a chilly night, he insisted that his date wear his coat to stay warm, very nice of him. So Bob went to get some gas. His date waited an hour, but he never returned. So she went to the police to inform them of his disappearance. You know, Maybe he was murdered, maybe he was kidnapped, who knows. Well, the search for the missing Oppenheimer was not difficult. The police found him asleep in his bed. He had apparently forgotten about his date and his car and to think we trusted him with nuclear weapons. And in our next story, which is dated April 14th, 1946, Dr. Arthur W. Brooks did something that we take for granted today. He walked over to a machine that his school had developed with the assistance of the Army Ordnance Department, and he asked it to multiply 97,367 by itself 5,000 times over. In less time than it takes to blink an eye, the machine produced an answer. This machine was named the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, or as it's more commonly known, ENIAC. And it's considered to be the first electronic computer ever. Now, you can forget about putting this thing in your pocket. In fact, it wouldn't even fit in most people's homes. That's because ENIAC filled up nearly all of the 30-foot by 60-foot room that housed it. That's about 9.1 by 18.3 meters. And it consisted of 18,000 vacuum tubes, more than half a million solder joints, and it took more than 200,000 man-hours to build. The cost to construct it was estimated to be about $400,000, which is approximately $5.3 million today. It would take the invention in our next story to begin the process of miniaturizing computers into, of course, what we use today. On November 8th of 1948, Dr. Joseph A. Becker, who is a physicist at Bell Labs, introduced a new invention at a meeting of the Philadelphia chapter of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. He claimed that this invention would replace those bulky vacuum tubes that were found in all of the electronics of the day. That included ENIAC, radio, and the newly invented televisions. And he predicted that someday this invention would make it possible to have a radio so small you could wear it like a wristwatch. The name of this new miniature electronic component was called the transistor, and boy did it revolutionize electronics. So what do all these books have in common? 1984, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Catcher in the Rye, The Great Gatsby, Catch-22, Ulysses, Silent Spring, and A Brief History of Time. Well, it turns out they're all consistently cited as among the greatest books ever written. Well, it's time to add one more book to those lists. It's a book that will forever change your life. So captivating, so fascinating that it is sure to move to the top of every best book list from this day forward. That is my new book, The Flip Side of History. Of course, I'm just joking that the book will be on anyone's greatest list except maybe my own, but The Flip Side of History is designed to entertain. In it, I have researched and written more than 40 fascinating true stories that time has long forgotten. If you're a fan of this podcast, and you know exactly what this collection is all about. In it, you'll learn about a New York City murder where the only witness talking was a green parrot. There's also an elderly rich man who paid to lease another man's wife for a period of one year. And then there was a woman who was imprisoned for daring to wear slacks to court. Or how about the time they bombed Los Angeles with perfume? And then there was a man who was stuck at sea simply because he was a citizen of no country. There are those stories and so many more in The Flipside History, which is written by me, Silverman and it's on sale right now, both online and at your local bookseller. So earlier I'd asked you about the first non-mammal discovered to experience contagious yawning. Did you know the answer? The answer is the budgerigar, the budgie, the common parakeet that so many of us had as pets. In a May 2015 study in the psychology department at the State University of New York at Oneonta, researchers were able to prove that parakeets did the same exact thing. They experienced contagious yawning. They had set up two experiments to prove this. In the first, eight pairs of parakeets were set up in adjacent cages, with and without visual barriers between them. It was determined that when one bird yawned, the other bird was three times as likely to yawn within five minutes than those who had not. And in the second study, those same birds were shown a video of a parakeet yawning, and they were observed to yawn twice as often as those who had not seen the video. The researchers attributed the contagious yawning to being a primitive form of the birds showing empathy towards one another. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information podcast to a close. As I just mentioned a few minutes ago, my new book, The Flipside History, is finally available. You can purchase it as a physical copy, as an ebook in both Kindle and Nook versions, and as an audiobook. Now, I should point out that I did not do the narration for the audiobook a professional reader was hired to record it. Honestly, I wasn't even aware until late June that there was going to be an audio version of the book, and by that time, they already had arranged the whole thing. My understanding is that promotion for the book should begin shortly. Now, if you have a favorite radio station or podcast that you think I'd be an excellent guest for, just let them know. They can easily contact me. They can see what I offer, listen to what I have, and maybe they'd want me on as a guest. Now, it's been many years since my first book came out, but I was asked to do quite a number of interviews back then, and most of them were on morning radio or very late at night. And that's because the stories are so quirky and unusual and lighthearted. So uh, I was actually on some of the shows multiple times. So if you know of somebody that may be interested in having me on, feel free to mention it to them. Just a reminder to be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed it's at uselessinfocast. And that'll allow you to be among the first to know when a new episode is released. Again, the handle is at uselessinfocast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there and it should pop up. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Anyways, thanks for listening and I hope you tune in the next time. Take care, everyone. Bye.